is Diagnosis Glaucoma with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen and Dr. Harry Quigley. Here we are for episode number 42 of the Diagnosis Glaucoma podcast. This one is going to be talking about a very interesting subject, the development, the FDA approval and safety of glaucoma eyedrop medications. And we have one of the world's experts on this particular subject to be interviewed today. The special guest is Dr. Gary Novak. Dr. Novak, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your bio and what you do and where you work? Well, good morning, Harry. Thank you very much for asking me to participate in this podcast. I'm a clinical pharmacologist. I specialize in ophthalmology. I'm a Californian and was trained all at University of California schools in initially pharmacology of the brain, neuropharmacology and neurophysiology. In uh, the 1980s, I started work at Allergan, helping to develop a new glaucoma drug. And Harry, that's when I met you many decades ago. That's right. I have a consulting firm, Pharmalogic, which I created some decades ago, and I'm also a professor at the University of California, Davis. So the folks in the field know that if they have a serious question to ask about drugs, they ask Gary Novak. Gary, you mentioned that you had worked for Allergan, but right now you are not actually an employee of any specific drug company. Is that correct? That's correct. Pharmalogic is my consulting firm. I only consult with firms. I, I'm not an employee, nor do I own stock in any pharmaceutical firm. So if some company wants to think about a new drug and they say, gee, I wonder if this would work, or how did people get a different drug approved? They come to you to ask how to do that? That's correct. I try to teach my trainees to have an elevator speech. And then one of them turned around and asked me what my elevator speech was. And I said, I help companies develop new drugs to treat eye disease. That's like a full-time job. You could actually make a living doing this. Is that right? That's correct. I'm fortunate that there are a lot of people who ask me to help them. So a lot of people hear that the drug companies justify the prices of their drugs by saying, oh, well, look at how much it costs to do all that research at the start. How does a new drug go from the initial bench lab research to actually becoming a product? And I realize that's a complicated question, but if you can just give us some of the, the high points along the way of how a drug develops. Sure, so there's first the research, and that is not just months, but years and decades. And some of that may be very basic research, such as how does the eye make the aqueous humor, the liquid that nourishes the front of the eye, how's that made? And what molecular mechanisms cause that to happen? Then if there's a target, for, oh, we see this new area, then someone will start perhaps synthesizing new molecules and evaluating how those work in some animal models of the disease. And it's really, I get involved once we move from what I call research to development. That is that early stage research has been done and there's a molecule that might work. And that's when people say, to come to me and say, what happens next? Kind of like what you just asked, Harry. So in that laboratory phase, are they testing this on cells in a dish or are they actually trying things out in animals? And in which animal is the typical thing done? Right. Again, good question. It starts with these days with computer modeling in silico is the fancy word for perhaps molecular modeling on a computer, then cells in a dish and sometimes in isolated eyes from animals that have been sacrificed. 
and then finally whole animals. And in the case of glaucoma, if we were looking at lowering intraocular pressure, one of the signs of glaucoma, those typically start with rabbits and then eventually move to higher species. I was a visitor, again, as a consultant, I don't work for any drug company and get paid for it. And they had a robot that was testing drugs and the robot could shoot literally a thousand little spritzes of drug onto a test. It turned out in that case, it was cells it was testing it on. Is this now a kind of routine that the companies have these essentially automated robots, which look like some kind of science fiction? Right. And I think it is science fiction. I don't get as involved in that stage of the research, but back in a previous century, when I did this, I had uh, isolated organs in a bath where I was bubbling through the right kind of liquid. So I have to say, I don't see that part these days, but yes, I would think that that's how people test a number of molecules. So now they're going to put something presumptively on the eye and what lucky human gets to be the first person who has that done to them. That's right. Well, in between that place where research has selected a molecule that they think is going to work, and it, when it gets tested in humans, there's a lot of what's called development. And that's kind of where I get involved. And it's sort of, I don't know if I would say counterintuitive, it's a bigger step than we might think. So the first is that the drug, and again, I'm talking about small molecule drugs, like are in most of the eye drops that patients use. The drug has to be synthesized in a very pure, consistent way, and it has to be stable just as a powder. Then a product has to be formulated that could work in eye drops, and that has to use liquids and so-called excipients, which are inactives, that help balance that out to make sure it's stable, that it's not too acid or not too alkaline, and that we call that formulation or drug product. So then the next is to look at safety in animals. Again, some of that is done in, in cell culture, and we're trying to use less animals in research, but still the standard is to put eye drops in usually two different species, a kind of a lower order species like a rabbit or a rat and a higher order. Although again, we try not to use non-human primates, otherwise known as monkeys, and a regulatory submission to the FDA or the governing health authority. And that all goes on before the first drop goes in the first human. So people might think of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, as government employees and some advisory committees who sit around and look at the final data. But as I understand it, the FDA is involved in talking to the companies much earlier on than that, and even in the design of the initial research to be sure it's going to be useful. Is that correct? That's correct. So most regulatory authorities will meet with the sponsor, the pharmaceutical firm, as early on as you want. Again, differs, as you might imagine, by country and exactly how to do that. But certainly in the U.S., the people who look at ophthalmic drugs and devices encourage you to come in and talk to them. And I, I participate in easily 10 sessions like that a year. So before one of these drops then goes on to somebody's eye, it's actually been tested for safety and for the formulation being non toxic, at least as non-toxic as possible. And so, as I mentioned earlier, that lucky first human actually has a pretty good idea that this is not going to hurt them in any way. But is it normally normal volunteers who get the first try or is it patients and do they know they're in a study? Again, good question. So, but also involved here is a independent human subjects committee that looks at the ethics 
of this study. Actually, we summarize the data that I mentioned in the same way we summarize it for the FDA. We summarize it for these human subjects committees and subjects must read and sign an informed consent. So in America and most, most countries, people know they're in a study. They have to give consent to participate. And indeed, children, and again, we, we do research in children, we can get to that. Parents give consent, but if they're eight years or older, they give assent. So people know they're in a study and the risk as best we can share them or quantify them are, are conveyed to these individuals. If I were going to my eye doctor and I have glaucoma, then I wouldn't be given some new drug that hadn't been approved unless somebody said to me, this is going to be a research project and you go through a consent process. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And where, is, where does that actually happen? I mean, is that a company and they've got a bunch of patients or where do the patients come from that are in these, I guess they call them phase one, two, and three kinds of studies. Where are the patients from? That's correct. I want to go back to what you asked about normal volunteers or patients. And sometimes we go to normal volunteers first. Those are healthy normals. Those might be done in research setting. We call them a phase one unit, but this is a company that recruits in healthy volunteers for this. Some companies have a phase one unit in them. I don't know if that's still the case, but a number of companies have that. However, we really like to go to patients as early as possible because there's some things that just aren't going to be the same in healthy volunteers. And intraocular pressure is one in particular, where that we won't really know if a new drug lowers elevated intraocular pressure in a healthy volunteer. We won't know that till we go to a patient. Now, in the later stage, you actually have to have patients with glaucoma who use the drop for a period of time. Is that for example, for a year or something? And is that a pretty set way the FDA deals with it? That's correct. So there's a stage, it all starts with one drop, right? And, and But the duration for most newly approved drugs to treat glaucoma, there has to be at least a year of human safety that is in at least 100 patients. I was going to get back to your other question about where is this research done in patients? So it's done in both private practices and university settings. Again, there is a formal process to evaluate, to make sure that that physician is qualified. Obviously, it has to be trained in ophthalmology and has a medical license, but also that they have the skills and equipment to do the job. So for example, if there's a special type of imaging of the optic nerve at the back of the eye that has to be done, you can't place that in a center that doesn't have that instrument. So that's part of what we do to evaluate a research center. So the FDA gets, say, the data from a one-year-long study of this new drug, and several hundred patients have been asked to use the drug. How does the FDA decide that the drug is good enough to get approval? That's a good point. So again, I'm going to say part of it that is not as well considered or that we see is that it, the drug has to be very stable. And if there's any specialized storage requirements, like it has to be refrigerated, that's a, a big package. And in fact, sometimes that is the rate limiting step, not the human efficacy and safety. There's also, in some cases, additional animal studies that have to be done. For example, what happens if it's taken by a pregnant woman or long-term wise, does it increase the chance of cancer? Those are studies that are going on, I'll say, in the background. Though, however, though, the real key is, is getting to the human data and based on a law in America that dates from 1962, President John Kennedy signed this law. 
that the drug has to be safe and effective in at least two studies. And then the FDA makes a benefit-risk decision. Every drug has adverse effects, including no drug. So there's a benefit versus the risk. And that's an assessment that's made when all of this data is sent to the FDA at the end of the development process. I think we're all aware that the vaccines for COVID came about very, very rapidly and that they were approved in what was called an emergency kind of setting. What you've just described is not an emergency setting thing. It's the standard way drugs are approved. And I don't know that there's an example of some kind of emergency approval that's ever happened in ophthalmology drugs. Do you know of one? Right. Again, good question. So I think the acronym is EULA, which is emergency something licensing authorization. And again, technically, those COVID vaccines were not approved, but they were allowed to be used. Sorry for the legalese. There are a number of programs at FDA to expedite development, especially in life-threatening conditions and also, in our case, in sight-threatening. There are no examples in ophthalmology where a so-called conditional approval have been done. They are mostly in three areas, cancer, HIV, and also in pain related to some of those diseases. But to date, and the fancy name is subchapter H, could go into that detail probably more than folks want to know right now, but you are correct. There are, however, a number of ophthalmology drugs which have had, I'll call it more rapid regulation. So the normal review time for all this data is 10 months. There are a number of ophthalmic drugs that were reviewed in six months. I'm going to jump ahead on our agenda to next ask. So the drug gets approved by the FDA and now it's out there. The doctor can prescribe it. What if there are problems with the drug that were not detected during all of this testing that happen after it's out on the market? Who blows the whistle on that? How do we find out? Right. So again, a good question about because no matter what, even if you look at a thousand patients, you know, large development plan, when it gets out there, For the most part, it's going to be used now in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients. So everyone has an obligation to report safety issues, which I use the term adverse event. Adverse event is non-judgmental. It might be that, you know, sometimes, of course, we think of bad things. Could be good things. In the case of a glaucoma drug, one of them grew eyelashes. And in some people, that's actually a good thing. Some people, it's not. So everyone has an obligation. The company, the physician has an obligation to report these adverse events to the company. There are 800 numbers on every product or directly to the FDA. The company, if they find about it otherwise, they have an obligation to report to FDA at least once a year. So both good and bad, there's an obligation for regular reporting. And then depending what happens, the package insert may be changed. So that continues to happen on glaucoma drugs. There's new adverse events. On the other hand, there's a move to use what's called real-world evidence to help expand what we know about drugs on the efficacy side. There's been, to my view, a big change in how pharmaceutical companies do their business, say, over the last 20 years. What changes have you seen, and do you think that there are things that will continue to happen, and are they generally beneficial or not? So I'm no economist, but I will tell you that America is a capitalistic society and that most drug development and marketing is done by the private sector. Obviously, you know, Harry, you and others benefit from federal grants to do some of the, I would say, earlier stage research that we were talking about, but it's done by the private sector. So 
Everything that affects the business community, interest rates, availability of money, availability of skilled employees, that affects the pharmaceutical industry. I think we see sort of an evolution. Again, when I started, and again, I mentioned I'm a Californian, there were almost no pharmaceutical firms in the West Coast. They were all on the East Coast, and I thought I was going to have to become an East Coaster. There have been certainly many more, I'll call them large firms that exist, as well as startups. And those, again, are an evolution. Somebody has an idea, they get a little bit of money, and they get to a certain stage. Usually, the smaller companies kind of get purchased by the larger companies because, again, sometimes it's easier to do research in a small environment than a big environment. And also, just the cost to do the drug development, the risk-reward is high. Pharmaceutical development is high reward, but it's also high risk. So, for example, only about 17% of drugs that enter those early stages of research, only 17% end up getting approved, and that means making money for the company. So if it were a batting average of a baseball player, the guy would be batting about 150, and he probably wouldn't stay in the major leagues to equate that to the likelihood that even a drug that starts being tested in a human winds up actually being a drug. So that's one of the factors. As you said, inflation's another but you've written uh, some definitive papers on what's the price of drugs. And without going into that in extraordinary detail, um, is there a price for a drug? And if so, how does it get set? Yeah, well, thank you for reading one of my papers. Indeed, it's, again, one of those counterintuitive things, but it's, it's not obvious what the out-of-pocket payment is for a patient. Even are you seeing patients, unless they're on a particular healthcare system and you subscribe to some certain software, you don't know what the patient will pay. And usually the branded is more, but not always. It depends on whether their healthcare system has done a deal. But I, I think this is not dissimilar from, I think, how cataract and other surgery is done. If the patient has insurance, the price is a negotiation between the physicians, the center that where the surgery is being done, and their insurance companies. If they don't have insurance, and again, we know, unfortunately, some patients don't, then it's kind of like retail. So it's just really challenging to know what a patient is going to pay out of pocket. And again, it's, you know, we, we want our, patient, you know, our patients to get the right therapeutics. We want them to have the right treatment for their disease. And again, I understand that's challenging in some cases. I know a lot of doctors, I certainly do the following, and that is I'll say to a patient, I'm going to prescribe a drug for you. And when you go to the drugstore or when it gets mailed to you from your pharmacy service, I'd like to know what it was that was your out-of-pocket cost. And I will warn them ahead of time with certain drugs that I'm expecting that it may be some sticker shock that they get hit with. And if so, they ought to call me and let me know, doctor, I can't pay this every month. We as physicians, though, for the ophthalmic drugs, literally have almost no control whatsoever over it, except by knowing what the likely out-of-pocket cost has been in our area for patients to kind of guess that this one's going to be cheaper than the other one for you, but we're going to have to wait and see how it goes. We wish it were better. That's correct. I, I will say it at my institution at UC Davis, for some patients, we do have that software, and I've seen that happen with one of our colleagues I was in the room with a patient and the patient complained that a drug was stinging. And the, the ophthalmologist said, hmm, I could give you this alternative. We have to have the software. I'll tell you the difference for you. And the out-of-pocket difference for that patient was about $50 a month. 
And the patient decided for $50 a month, they'd put up with little stinging. However, again, you'd love that. I think it's only a limited number of patients. I will say that at our American Glaucoma Society, there were at a university setting where someone actually did that. They went to the pharmacy with the patient and did that interaction. But you know, it should be easier with computers. And you know, it's law that all medical computers are supposed to talk to each other, but, but they don't, unfortunately. I urge patients of mine to tell me how much their deductible cost is, and especially if it seems like it's a lot, because there are times where something is being done either as a mistake or as literally trying to try out whether they can get away with charging somebody a whole lot more than they really should. And if a drug should cost $18 retail and has been around for 25 years and a patient says, they asked me to pay $100 deductible for this, I've actually called the drugstore and said, I'm Dr. Quigley, tell me what's the cost for drug X here? Just to raise their consciousness that somebody's watching. Well, I think that's great that you provide that. Again, not every physician is as dedicated and has the time to do that. So I think that's great. Well, you're not objective about me. Just sort of as a, a final closing here, there was a, a recent set of eye drops that hurt people. And maybe you can tell, do you, are you aware of that? I'm sure you are. And what exactly happened there? And why is it unlikely to happen to people here if they get regular drugs? Right. Thank you. So this made national news and it was an over-the-counter artificial tear product, the kind that's available without a prescription. And not exactly regulated. It's the same way as prescription drugs are. And we now know what happened is that the manufacturing facility was not following regulations correctly. And also that somehow there was a contamination and that a number of patients got exposed to a contaminated eye drop product. What patients should do is, and it's, we can, I don't know, perhaps you have the facility to share this link. It's a particular brand of product. And so patients should not use that brand, that product. Further, if there's any questions, of course, ask the pharmacist or their physician. But it is rare that this happens with marketed glaucoma medications of the type that you prescribe for your patients. We urge patients to bring in the bottles of stuff they're using because they'll say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm taking a nutraceutical called St. John's Ward or something. And I'm always interested in having them bring those in. And especially those, this was a preservative-free artificial tear in a bottle. And I ask people to bring the stuff in. So if they happen to have this particular brand, Ezicare and Delsum, I think were the names on them. Nobody will remember that from the podcast. But bring it into your ophthalmologist and say, are these the ones that I shouldn't be now using just in case somebody's still got a bottle? People save these bottles of stuff for years in their medicine cabinet and then bring them out. And some of them have cobwebs on them. That is correct. And yes, one of the issues is that this company marketed many doses without a preservative in the bottle or a special way to seal that bottle. And you could say, well, how does the FDA let people do that? And the answer is they don't. But this is one case where the company can market and then wait for things rather than have approval as what happens for prescription drugs. So it was one of those a number of terrible things that happened that shouldn't have happened. And unfortunately, people got infection and unfortunately, some people died. But I think that's great. Have the patient show the bottle to some healthcare professional who can look at it. That would be great. Well, great. Gary, did you have any other aspects that we should have talked about today that we haven't yet? I think just to tell you my, you know, again, I'm a pharmacologist, but part of pharmacology is something called therapeutics, which is 
optimal use of, of products. And, you know, I think, Harry, you and I have done a lot of work on trying to help patients use the drugs as their physicians prescribe, which is sometimes challenging and ways to figure out how patients can do that. And the other is simply how to take eye drops. Sometimes it's hard to take eye drops, but we have a number of ways. You have a book, I think, about teaching people how to do it. Patients shouldn't be embarrassed to say, you know, it's, it's hard for me to use this eye drop. Teach me how to do it. I think those are free things that can easily improve, if you will, the quality of life for, for patients. Right. Well, diagnosisglaucoma.com, where these podcasts originate, has the book, Glaucoma, What Every Patient Should Know, written by Dr. Mona Kaleem and me. And it has a chapter with 13 things you should know about how to put your drops in and how to remember to take them. On the subjects of today's talk, there are some other podcasts that are very closely linked. Episodes 11 and 12 are about the individual glaucoma eye drop medications. Episode 26 was about medical marijuana and does it help patients with glaucoma? And episode 34 is about dropless glaucoma treatment or new attempts to develop things where you don't have to take an eye drop every day. Well, Gary, this was a lot of fun and extremely informative. I, I don't know any other podcast anywhere that would have had an expert like you filling people in on this particular kind of material. And I hope to see you again soon personally. And we thank you for being a member of our podcast team. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, your mom says, take your drops.